with you. Uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. It says this, uh, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We'll explore that text um, in a little bit in this message. But for now, as we start, um, I'll explain a little bit about what the series is that we're we're starting tonight. Um, But before I do, why don't you turn to the person next to you, either side, you choose, and ask the question, what is, so in regards to the Bible, what is it? In regards to the Bible, what is it? Go. Amazing. So this message um, and series in general is hopefully going to involve quite a lot of participation um, throughout. Uh, Tonight, believe it or not, there will actually be audience participation in regards to we will have people, other people moving on the stage other than myself. So if you start to fall asleep and get bored, at least look forward to that moment when there'll be other smiley faces up here. Maddie, I've just seen you as well. How are you? Welcome back. Not to make you feel uncomfortable, but it's good to see you. Um, So I had loads of people come to me on a regular basis, and probably some of the most common questions I have in regards to faith and and spirituality are around the Bible, particularly from my generation, which for those that are wondering is still, and I'm still within the bracket, the millennial kind of 18s to 30s generation. I've got one more year and I fall outside that bracket, but for now I'm within that bracket. Um, And questions about what the Bible is and what it looks like and how we read it. And, and, And the most common thing that people say to me is they find it so difficult to read the Bible that they just don't bother. Or they find it so difficult to read the Bible that every single time they come before God in their quiet times, it feels like an upward battle. What does it say? How do we read this? Where do I begin with that text? Some people, it's it's understanding the Bible because it's full of a lot of words that we don't use in regular speech. We don't talk about grace or righteousness or salvation. And if you're not familiar, if you've not been brought up in a Christian background, those words are quite alien, right? Would people agree with that? So it becomes difficult. It becomes wordy. It becomes... Can I say it? Boring for some people to read the Bible? You think, why am I doing this? It's difficult. Let's have some authenticity about this. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for those that are raising their hands and owning that. <laughs> oh. oh, okay. Oh, I appreciate that. I hope you don't mean in regards to what I'm saying now, because that's really offensive. <laughs> um, and then we also have the difficult passages, right? The ones that we just... just don't work with us. We think that's so harsh. How could that happen? Or, or what does that mean? Or there's no way God does that. Or, or that doesn't work with this. And those two seem a complete contradictions. So we go, oh, do you know what? I can't be bothered with it. The Bible is just full of contradictions. It doesn't make any sense. It's weird. Some of the weird stuff we read in the Bible, and that's it. I'm done with it. So, so regularly, that is a conversation I'm having with people. So I thought, do you know what we need to do? Let's have an open conversation about how we read the Bible. Let's look at the tools that we use as ministers, the tools that the kind of ivory tower academics use, the tools that regular everyday theologians use, and the tools that you will use, whether you know you do or you don't, and hopefully give you some really practical ways that you can begin to, to uh, um, engage with God's Word. So this, so this book 
that is so life-inspiring and life-giving doesn't seem a big, scary, daunting process every time you pick it up for your quiet times. But even when you come to those difficult passages, you can go with confidence, I know what I'm going to do to explore this. People up for that? I'm really pumped about this series. So I warn you, I've had about three or four coffees because I'm also very tired and I'm excited about the series. So this might be just a ball of passion all in one. So hopefully you can understand what I'm saying. Um, in that. I want to recommend a book, um, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, by a guy called Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Have people read this? Do you want to chuck your hand in the air just so we can show that we're in this together? There's a few people, brilliant, that have read it. Um, it's at CRP. I'm not sure if there is a discount, but I think if I say it at the front and then we all say there is a discount, there may well be. <laughs> Go and chat to Mike Law. <laughs> I don't know. You say Ross recommended it and I want a discount. Um, and it'll get you a copy of this book. I think it retails about seven or eight quid. It's not particularly very much, but it is a fantastic book. I've actually never read it fully through, but for this series, knew I liked the title and knew the kind of content of the book and have been flicking through it and been really enjoying reading that. So get a copy of it. It will help you to, to kind of further some of the stuff that we're looking at within this particular series. So if you have the flyers in front of you in your pews, feel free to pick them up. Um, feel free to take them home. You don't have to leave them there. Bring these home and stick them on your fridge. Um, let me just explain with you kind of how this series is going to go to, to raise a bit of enthusiasm and excitement about it. So tonight I'm looking at what the Bible is and exploring that with you. What is this book that we all read as Christians across continents um, and come to love? And then I want to look at some of the tools that we can use to, to read the Bible. So firstly, we're asking the question in the second message next week, and KT is exploring this topic, what did it say then? One of the tools we use is, is called exegesis. That's the big... What biblical theologians like to do is they like to create words that confuses everyone so we can still maintain the fact that we're fairly intelligent. Just so you know. So if we use words like that, that's the reason we do it. It's just to confuse you. So exegesis is the word that describes basically looking at the historical context of the passage. What did it say then to the people that were hearing it? When this was originally written and the authors were originally writing it, what was the author's intent and what was the aim for those who were listening to it to, to receive? Then um, on the third day, we've got On the Sofa with Scripture. Uh, I've managed to coerce some of the ministers in the local area to come and sit down on the sofa with me and we'll have a chat about some of these things. How have they read the Bible over the years? What tools do they use when they come to prepare sermons, when they do their quiet times? What are some of the things that we can learn from their experiences in regards to Scripture? Then in the fourth um, session, we're looking at what does it say then? So we've explored the first tool, exegesis, the history, and what it meant in its original context. But then we've got to make a jump from about 2,000 years. Brilliant, it meant that for the ancient Israelites. Brilliant, it meant that for those living in a Roman Greco context. But what about us 2,000 years later where we've got hashtags and the internet? How does that make any sense today? And that tool's called hermeneutics. And um, Mike Law will be exploring in simple language what that looks for us um, in our everyday. And then finally, the last message is, what does this mean for tomorrow? So once we've explored these tools, we've explored what the Bible is, the question is, when you go away to do your quiet time tomorrow, what are some of the tools you can use to enjoy reading the Bible? So it doesn't become a, a, a chore, but it becomes something that you're confident in reading and excited about reading. Are you a bit more like, yes? Do you know what? I'm quite up for this series. Yes? Yes, Rightly Baptist Church. The most unenthused people ever. Cool. All right, so that question, what is it, is the question that we're looking at um, for this first part. So first and foremost, I'm going to give you a kind of sentence. And the first part of this sentence is the Bible is the word 
of God. People agree? The Bible is the Word of God. That is what makes this particular book um, different from every other book, is that we believe this is the Word of God. Hebrews uh, 4, verse 12, if you've got your Bibles with you. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the, to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. People, have you ever experienced that about God's word? You can read a passage and it can cut into the deepest part of your soul. You can leave and wrestle with even just a few words for an entire week. There's something about this book that, 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 that is life-changing. The way God uses it, the way God speaks through it, 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 there's this element in which it is God's word to us. It's living, it's breathing, it, it challenges us, it challenges us to be different. People experience this? The simple passages in this, in this book can have life-changing impacts. And in the passage that we met a, a minute ago from 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17... All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this particular language of all scripture is, is God-breathed. Um, Paul is, is writing to Timothy, and he's challenging a lot of the other um, thoughts and sects that were around at the time, the Gnostics, other heretics, and saying, you may have your religious books, but they're man-made. The book that we're reading from, and bear in mind what he's referring to here is the Old Testament, is, is God breathed. God has breathed into this particular text. It is exciting and it is living precisely because God's Holy Spirit is inspiring the words and stories on this page. I remember when um, I first kind of really committed to God, I'd always struggled with the Bible. To be fair, I'd struggled with reading in general. It just didn't interest me. And... Um, I remember for my mum and dad, that was the biggest acknowledgement that God had got hold of my life, was the fact that I was reading. It's a bit sad and embarrassing to admit, but it was true. And I used to, I remember, I woke up one morning after being prayed for in, in, in the service, and this book that had been so complicated and dead and boring for so long suddenly was alive. And I remember I'd wake up every morning, and the first thing I wanted to do was to see what Jesus could say to me through this book to see, um, learn more about God, learn more about what, it, what, what was happening in the complexity of this particular book. I used to sit down in the evening. I had a big, I had a big NIV, like uh, one of those study Bibles. I'd bang it on the table, because if you have a bigger Bible, it means you're a better Christian. I'm not sure if you know that, but that's the rules, right? Bigger the Bible, the better Christian you are. don't know why, but it's just true. Um, and, and this Bible was on the table. I had maps. I was enjoying... I'm not good at geography. You ask Alice. You get me to the end of the road, and I'll probably get lost. And I'm there, like, studying maps, going... So Paul was going here when he wrote this letter, and he did this. And suddenly this whole book, which was originally just boring... Histor historical facts suddenly became living stories that I could relate to. And, and, and these characters impacted my life because of what God had, had done in them. Everyone, anyone experienced that before? This book becomes alive and inspires you. So fundamentally, when we come to this book, it is not just any ordinary book, but it is God's word. God's spirit has breathed into it, and we have something living that is exciting and challenges and changes our lives. But we can't just stop there. And this is where things get more complex. I ask you that you go with me in this. 
So that's the first part of the question. It is God's word, is the word of God. But the second part of the statement is it is given in human words in history. Because if it was, as we said a minute ago, then all Christians would agree. There would be unity across the church for centuries and we'd have no differences of opinion. But yet the reality is we do. Why do we? Because it is given in human words in history. There's a complex element to the kind of story we're painting when it comes to the Bible. It is divine, yes, but it's also human. And that's a tension that we need to learn to hold as Christians. It's given in human words in history. I remember when I was at... um, doing my undergraduate, I didn't, at the time, I read the Bible quite literally. For me, it was God's word. Every word was God-breathed, so I could receive something from everything. And I read the, the passages about women, and uh, <laughs> I could feel the tension in the room as I say that in itself. And I, I struggled with the idea of women in leadership. I, I was like, well, no, the Bible says quite clearly women can't be in leadership. That's what I've read on the page. That's what it says. And suddenly, I, I, I started talking to her, but I couldn't get around the fact that I knew so many women who were incredible leaders. And I, I went to them in conversation. I said, look, I know it's controversial. I know I shouldn't, but I, I just, can you talk to me about this? How, why are you where you're at in regards to this passage? Because it says that there. What, am I reading this wrong? What do we need to do? And, and, and we talked about the historical context. We began to explore it with commentaries. And I am so grateful for those women that, that saw beyond all my blunders in language and just said, look, let's, let's talk about this passage. Because I was able to acknowledge that, that there was um, patriarchy going on in some of these texts from a, a very patriarchal culture. And asking, actually, what are we taking from this text? Are we taking all of that, all the cultural baggage, if you like, as well as, as what God is trying to say through this text? Is that kind of making sense? So it is God's word written in, in human words in history. It contains thousands of years of, of history, ancient history from Greco-Roman cultures to ancient Middle Eastern cultures to, to, to way, way back. It is, contains endless uh, narratives from different cultures. You look at the Bible and we read all these different stories and we go, well, they seem to aspect to that seem to disagree with aspect to this. Of course they did. There's generations between them. We have people who think in all kinds of different ways. Moses wouldn't have agreed with whoever this character is in, in the New Testament. The, the world was different for them. They were, were products of their own culture. So different ways of thinking, history and culture is all in this particular book. I find this exciting. We look at the different genres all kinds of genres. It's, it's, a, it's like an ancient library of what God has been doing amongst his people. We have songs and poems in the Psalms. Incredible truth expressed in these poems. Real, authentic, this is what God's doing and I don't like it. But it's expressed in a poetic form. We've got narratives in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. These great stories of kings and the Israelite people and their journey as God worked through in and through them. We've got the prophetic books of, of Isaiah and, and, and Ezekiel. We've got the parables that Jesus told, not necessarily um, meant to be taken historically accurately, but full of, of truth and all kinds of different meanings that you can glean from these particular stories. Then there's the different literary styles. Jesus always used hyperbole, overstating his point. If your eye causes you to sin, rip it out. 
You've all got eyes, so clearly you didn't, haven't been ripping them out and taking the Bible seriously. Or in fact, the, the style that we're dealing with here is Jesus' love of hyperbole. He overstates his point in order to make it stronger and, and more potent for people to take away. Metaphor is throughout Scripture. All of these things go into to, to make it beautiful but complex, requiring interpretation, requiring us to study it. So not only is the human element complicated in regards to the Bible's formation and its substance, but also there's a further kind of interpretive complication because every single one of us, when we read the Bible, we bring a bunch of stuff to that, don't we? We bring our own experience, we bring our own cultural baggage, the way we're formed. So not only do we have the complexities in the cultures and the history of the actual text itself, but we, as the reader bring a bunch of stuff to that wonderful mix of complexity. There is hope, don't worry, I'm just building it up. So Gordon Fee um, and, and Douglas Stewart in this book, um, he says this, we invariably bring to the text all that we are with all our experiences, culture, and prior understandings of words and ideas. So one, understanding, uh, one word that we read in the Bible could have a whole wealth of meaning, but we read it from our context and we go well that's what it means and we base whole theologies and thoughts on that and yet the reality is if we haven't done the legwork to find out what that word actually meant suddenly it loses some of its impact and its actual meaning we bring so much to the text so let me walk you through a little bit of the interpretive process so i'm creating a sermon as the preacher here is the levels of interpretation that go on firstly you've got the bible translated from in the old testament hebrew in the new testament greek So you've got all these various manuscripts that are brought together. Each translation, and often we've got all number of translations, if it's not confusing enough, of the English Bible, right? About 50 translations. They all pick the manuscripts that that, that they deem to be most authoritative. So already there, you've got an interpretive decision being made. What manuscripts are deemed most authoritative that we're going to use in our translation then the, the actual translators are, are looking at these texts and making decisions. You've got words that are complex from ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek languages, and they're going, so it could mean this or it could mean that, and they're picking one of those interpretations. You've got another layer of complexity because suddenly the translator is also making an interpretation in what you read in your English translations. So as I said, there's over 50 English translations Some of them are really close to the Greek and Hebrew. Some of them are way off here somewhere. So I need volunteers. You three. By volunteers, I meant coercion. Can you come and join me? I'm going to give you a a word. Come on. And I asked the band as well, just for the sake of... Come on, guys. Choice is overrated. All right. You can be the ESV. The extremely sound version. Oh, wow. You can be the NSV, extremely sound version, NASV, sorry, NRSV. One of you could be the NIV, Standard Bible of Churches. NLT. And I've not planned this right because I'm one short. Who wants to come and volunteer? Come on, Maxwell. Give him a round of applause. What a man. You're the message. You refer to, <laughs> you refer to Jesus as blood. <laughs> All right. 
Uh, so actually, that's, that's pretty good. Um, so if we're calling this the kind of closest to the Greek and Hebrew, ESV probably wins that particular category. Message is, is, so message is not actually a translation, it's a transliteration. So, so it's not Eugene Peterson hasn't actually worked it out from the Greek and the Hebrew, but generally all the, he's used all the other translations to form his translation. All manner of complexities there. Uh, and as, you've actually, I'll tell you what, if you two switch for me, that's pretty, I don't know how you did that, that's amazing. Oh, wait, no, I do, because I printed them off in order of how they were meant to go and sing. <laughs> That's how, that's so close. Uh, then you've got the NLT, New Living Translation. People use that, that one. Again, it's, it's, it's actually a pretty good translation, but it's closer to the message. There's a lot of interpretive process that goes into these ones. The voice, again, to make it a, a, a translation that we can understand, there is so much um, extra good stuff in there, but it is an interpretation of what the text is saying. NIV, the standard of churches in, in, in the West. You've got the older version or the newer version of the NIV. One's uh, equal to genders, one's not, as is generally how people tend to see it. Um, there are a lot of complexities with the NIV, and sometimes some of the decisions they've made are very biased, but it's a fairly s- solid translation um, when it comes to them. NRSV is the one that scholars and everyone will tell you to use, the new revised standard version. So, Tony, you represent biblical orthodoxy and its strength. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> so if you want a good translation, that's the one they'd recommend because it's close to the Greek and Hebrew, but it also is, in, is, is enough in... They really capture the modern English well, so it's not too weird and strange. Um, NASV is New American Standard Version. That is pretty literal um, as well, and I'm going to make no comment with my darling fiancé holding it. <laughs> Brilliant. You've all done a fantastic job. Can we give him a round of applause? Thank you. That's it. Yeah, that's it. It's a wonderful waste of trees. Thank you. <laughs> so that was just to show you a bit of so all the interpretations and, and translations we have of the English Bible, all those different interpretive layers taking place. So then you've got your preacher. They've picked a translation. The translation has picked the different, picked the different manuscripts. We read it, and then we go, do you know what? I really need a commentary to help me understand this because it's not making any sense so I'm a big fan, as you know, of the old William Barclay. So I pick up William Barclay, and I read William Barclay. So I've now got my translation that I've preferred, currently NIV. I've now got my favorite man, William Barclay. He's giving me his interpretation of the text through his research. Say he studied at some theological college. He's a fan of his own Bible interpretation. He's got all his education. He brings all of that to the text. So I've got now all of his interpretive thought and process of going into this book, the agendas that he's bringing to this book, on top of my choice of um, translation, which I've chosen because of the baggage I bring to the text, because as a preacher, I've got a bunch of experiences, I've got theological bents that I have and, and views and beliefs I have, I bring all of them to that entire wonderful complicated process, and my favorite bit is I come up and I preach it to you guys with my heart passionately trying to communicate a particular message and I come to you afterwards and I go oh did you did you did you get it do you like the message and you, you say something completely opposite to what I intended you to actually understand from a text in its first place because you also bring all of your cultural baggage to the text itself so when I'm talking to you now I may be thinking I'm saying one thing but you are interpreting something entirely different isn't that that a complicated process doesn't that require humility when it comes to reading the Bible and how we wrestle with Scripture to get it together and interpret it? 
If there's all of those interpretive processes going in, then surely this is where we need the work of a loving God to guide us and and help us in interpreting it. But don't despair. (laughs) There is hope. The last thing I want you to do is go away and think, oh my goodness, Ross, if reading the Bible wasn't difficult enough, you've just made it more complicated than it ever was. Because, firstly, um, the richness and beauty of the Bible comes in some of that complexity. The more I've done theological education and found out how complicated this book is, the more I've fallen in love with the fact that it's, it still applies to my life, if that makes any sense. Gordon Fee, um, he says this. In regards to, to God speaking through his word, rather he chose to speak his eternal truths within the particular circumstances and events of human history. This also is what gives us hope, precisely because God chose to speak in the context of real human history, we may take courage that these same words will speak again and again in our own real history, as they have throughout the history of the church. So it's precisely because of the complexity of human nature and history that God has chosen to speak through that we have hope. Because those very same words can therefore apply to us. If they apply to the bumbling weirdos of the Bible, all the characters that we read about on a regular basis, because they were flawed humans, then surely those same truths that they learn about the living God can apply to us. Amen? So it's exciting. In its very humanness, it's not something to be feared, but something to be embraced, that we have hope that God can speak to us. But also, isn't the Bible incredibly consistent? So thousands of years of history, different cultures and contexts, all manner of thought going into it, and yet the themes that you can see throughout Scripture, the way it it ties up and links, and this bit relates to that bit, and if you read the start, it seems to make sense of the end, and all of these themes, it's an incredible tapestry of God's love through his people. Do you agree? Utterly beautiful that a book of such diversity can be so incredibly consistent. But this is a tension that we have to, to hold between the human and divine. So I need two more volunteers. <laughs> Fee, come on. You know you want to. Back on your frip? Yes. Thank you very much. Probably shouldn't use the word volunteers because it's more. No. I don't think I understand what that means. If you could hold that and if you could kind of stand away from each other. This is more for my own entertainment. I'm not going to lie. If you don't get anything from this, I'm sorry, but it's helpful. Or it could be. So um, this is the tension we try to hold when we come to the Bible. Much like with Jesus, he was fully God and fully man. There's a tension there to be held. If we overemphasize his divinity, we lose something of his humanity. But if we overemphasize his humanity, we lose something of his divinity. So you've got to be careful in trying to hold this tension. So if we go too close to the human side, and we just talk about the Bible as just a bunch of um, people who've written some stuff a long time ago, the Bible loses all of its authority and it becomes nothing but a bunch of nice morals that we can maybe apply to our life here and there if we fancy it. But then if we swing to this other side and, and focus too much on, on, on the divine side, um, we can take a very literalistic approach to the Bible because if every single word is God breathed, then we can just read what it says in the page, forgetting all the stuff we've looked at previously and take it at face value, which at times is a merit to, but at times just reading what the Bible says, we can make all kinds of conclusions. Firstly, we've got fans of steak in the room. Fans of steak? Who likes their, their rare steak? 
Yeah, sorry, Leviticus 19, verse 26, that rules out rare steak. Any meat with blood in, that's, that's a job done. And for me, that's a big issue. Uh, then we read Ephesians 6, 9. Ephesians 6, 9 talks about treating slaves well. The, the implication is we should have slaves. So we should be having slaves, but treating them well. If we link towards too far to the divine sage, every word um, becomes divine. We ignore historical context and the human influence of the text. We read it at face value, and we forget some of the complexities that lie below it. And also the biblical characters become kind of nicey-nicey and cutesy-cutesy, perfect and unflawed as they seem to be if we lean here. So somehow, do you know what? We can make this ultra-cheesy. I'm doing it. We've got to hold the tension between, between the two sides. Thank you very much. Yeah, for me, that's it. Uh, there's, there's your image right there. Thank you very much, guys. Just give them a round of applause. They're brilliant thoughts. If you had an insight into my brain, you'd realize how much I filter out of what I actually want to do up here. Gordon Fee um, says this. He says, the Bible... Um, it has been correctly said, is the word of God given in human words in history. It is this dual nature of the Bible that demands of us the task of interpretation. Because the Bible is God's message, it has eternal relevance. It speaks to all humankind in every age and in every culture. Because it is God's word, we must listen and obey. But because God chose to speak his word through human words in history, every book in the Bible also has historical particularity. So it's in reference to a particular culture and a particular time. Each document is conditioned by the language, time, and culture in which it was originally written. And in some cases, also by the oral history it had before it was written down. Interpretation of the Bible is demanded by the tension that exists between its eternal relevance and its historical particularity. Put simple, put simply, the tension between its human nature and its divine nature. Is this all making sense? We'll find out afterwards when I chat to you. You may be nodding your heads, but understanding something completely different than to what's been said. So we return to those phrases that we said at the start. We talk very much about the Bible being God's word, absolutely. But with different translations and differences in the text itself, does that mean that every single word, therefore, no, is necessarily as if fallen from heaven because it's written in human words in history, so what do we mean by, by God's word? Borg um, puts it very well. He says this. He's, again, a theologian, so he writes things in a kind of overly complex way. I'll try and bring out something from what he says. To call the Bible the word of God is to see it in all of these ways and no doubt more. The Bible is a means of divine self-disclosure. The traditional theological phrase for this is the Bible is the revelation of God, that God reveals himself through this particular book. In the Bible, as the foundation of the Christian cultural linguistic world, Christians find the disclosure of God, not because the Bible is the words of God, small w, as if every single word is the word of God, but because the Bible contains the primary stories and traditions that disclose the character and will of God. God has revealed himself through this book, and that is why interpretation and study is important. Because yes, it is God's word through and through. It is divine. God has spoken through it and breathed his life into it. But at the same time, it is written by humans in history. And therefore, we have a role as Christians to interpret this carefully in conversation with humanity. 
So what is it? The Bible is the word of God given in human words in history. But how do we hold this tension? Two things. Firstly, we study it. So if we're to take seriously the fact that the Bible is is written in human words in history, we must study it. It's not an added optional extra, but if we're to be honest about it, it's the only way we can engage with this text. I mean, how many of us study the Bible regularly? It's funny, isn't it? It's one of the key disciplines as Christians that we hold to study the Bible, but I don't know how many Christians I know that come up to me and say, I had a really good time studying the Bible today, not just reading it from the Bible app and getting your kind of verse for the day, which is important, and I'm Do not get me wrong, it's part of the whole fact that God's word is living and sharper than double-edged sword because he can speak through those moments. But surely there's other times, even if it's once a week, where we go, we're going to sit down with a particular book or or letter or psalm or, or poem, whatever it is, and go, God, what are you saying through this? Guide me to the right resources. What commentaries are we engaging with? Who are we talking about the Bible to explore what it meant to them and and now what it means? To us, do we take seriously that idea of studying the Bible? Because we have a lot to say about this book as Christians. And we can say very strongly a lot of things. And if we're going to say a lot of things strongly, then surely we've got to be studying this particular book and taking that seriously. The greatest treasures, it seems, in life are the ones that we work for, right? To become a good musician, to become a good sports person, um, to become a good cook. They all require effort. There's a great um, Bible app thing um, on you version. Can you go forward two, if that's all right? So you're going to give away the next one. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so this book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, is on the version Bible app, um, and it is called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. <laughs> Funnily enough, it's incredible consistency. Um, it's a 12-day study, and we're exploring all the themes that we're going to be looking at through this series, but in more detail. So maybe small groups, Joyce, might be something they can do as well and bring into their, into their um, studies. It's a great resource that you can use and take away, the Bible app, the YouVersion app, to explore this whole series in more detail. So study. Are you taking seriously your study of the Bible? And finally, humility. Because if we're to hold this tension, that the Bible is divine, yes, but human also, and to stand somewhere in the middle between these two things, we must read it with humility. We approach this book... And we say, God, what are you saying to me? We talk to each other. We love each other. And we explore it with excitement. Because the more I've come to learn about this book, the more I've learned about all the stuff. They don't go to theological college, they say, because they'll they'll corrupt you and make you non-Christian if you go to theological college. They'll show you all this stuff you didn't know, and it will turn you. It has turned me more towards Jesus the more study I've done. I've realized, one, I know absolutely nothing about the world or God. But I've also come to know the fact that this is one of the most exciting books because I consistently find the God that I love revealed through it in beautiful and tangible ways. So can I encourage us to when we look at the Bible, know it is the word of God given in human words in history and to hold that tension by studying it with humility. Are you game? And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, for this whole series, not just this message, we pray that you may excite us about your word. Give us courage to read it and, and, and equip us with the tools that, that it won't be such a daunting process of approaching 
your word, but one, in fact, that we look forward to, one that we take seriously, one that is life-giving. In your name, for your glory. Amen.